1: we want to have a discussion but first i just want to point out there's a couple of themes here one is the satellites (laughs) and the other there seems to be the interaction between modern techno humanity and the bio world whether it's the dog or the uh, acacia the the blooming plants it seems to be a, a, a quite a theme here um we'll take questions or comments from anybody uh I would just start with uh, one of the things I wanted to ask Paolo. Paolo's, there was a, um, I think, a very good and a sort of a important review by Gary Wolf, who's one of the more important science fiction reviewers in in um, Locus of um, Paolo's work. But it, I thought quite improperly said that it was very, it had a, a sort of bleak vision of humankind, and a, so it, it sort of brought a sort of a hopeless cast to things, which was not what I got out of *People of Sand and Slag*. And um, but it seems to be part of the public perception of Palo's So I just want to ask you, why is your stuff so goddamn depressing?
2: <laughs> Softball question. <laughs> oh, it's it's not depressing though, don't you sweetness and light. I mean, um, I <laughs> Right. It's about dogs. I mean, everybody loves dogs. Um they taste good. <laughs> uh, uh, um You know, it's an interesting thing I guess because uh one of the things about these stories is yeah, there are um There are dark elements to them, Um, but it's interesting. I mean, people of Sand and Slag is a darker story. Something like The Calorie Man uh, actually has a ray of hope through it, but most people still read it as being a fairly dark story. Um, One of the things that's interesting to me about is, I I guess, what people expect from reading a story that's in the science fiction genre um, versus what people expect from a story if they aren't. And... um, I grew up reading science fiction and I read it for the adventure and the fun and the engagement of that. And and so I think it's almost inherently painful to sort of feel like you're reading inside of the genre and then have that, that knife get twisted on you almost at all. Um, one of the things about a lot of my stories is that they are environmental stories. And it's interesting to see reactions I get from uh, environmentalists who read these stories, because they don't actually react as though oh I feel so depressed they say thank you for saying what I've been trying to say (laughs) Um, and they're actually engaged and excited about a lot of these stories even though they're it's dark material. It's actually – it's giving voice to concerns that people have. And so they read them in a very different way and react in a very different way. And that's been interesting to see that sort of – that split and division depending on whether or not people perceive themselves as being um, informed and well-read inside of science fiction or whether they perceive themselves more as being – identifying as environmentalists and environmental readers. I don't know. I don't
1: know. Carter, how do you feel? Do you think you – is know, science fiction, I, I never thought of it as a um – Particularly jolly literature
3: um,
4: <laughs> no it's not I think it's pretty well documented that it's not a particularly jolly literature I mean the dystopian strain is one of the strongest in in science fiction um, and you know you look back there's a classic essay by Barry Maltzberg where he looks back at some of the most revered um, science fiction you know stories such as uh, you know asimov 's uh, Nightfall well there's a cheery story for you isn't it you know I mean no, I think it's a, a well-established tradition in the field.
2: <laughs> um it's I, I wouldn't say that there aren't plenty of examples of it. Um but I guess i guess and that's the other thing about, about genres whether you're talking about what's selling and what dominates it in terms of the movement of the market right. versus uh examples of the different I mean I'm not saying that, that science fiction is at all homogenous. Um right. thank God for me. Like I mean otherwise I'd be dead meat. Um uh but that there is uh, an expectation set that sort of rolls along with a lot of it, um, and and when I look at the the dominant notes, especially, I mean, and this is definitely, you know, it's a partly a commercial, uh, you know, equation as well as a, a an artistic equation. Um, right. But that I guess that's sort of what I'm thinking of. I mean, when I was growing up, I was not reading, you know, Nightfall. I was reading iRobot. Um, you know, it's just. You know, when when I was growing up, I was reading Heinlein, and and those were you know, and that was a different sort of a story arc, and those were the ones that were you know on my father's shelf, and that those sort were of handed down to me with much affection. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, mm-hmm. here's a great story, son. Right. Um, and so I guess that's that's sort of what I'm I'm sort of saying about
4: it. Yeah, and you raise an interesting point that you know, there's enough difference in our ages that the how people look at science fiction has changed dramatically you know in this uh, in this time there was a uh there's, there's a distinction to be made between the science fiction genre as something which is a literary tradition in which you and I can look back at Asimov and Heinlein and so forth, and science fiction as a commercial category, as a marketing category, which includes, you know, every movie that's got a rocket ship in it and so forth.
2: Right? And, and science fiction is a tool set, too. I mean, yes. that's. I mean, some people I talk to say, Huxley isn't science fiction. And I say, God damn, he's science fiction. He's, what I'm, he's my touchstone here. This mm-hmm. guy is, like, you know, helping me write. Like, are you kidding? Right. Like and Sorry. No, right. Absolutely.
4: <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think that's dead on. It is a tool set. It's, it's a way of looking at the world. It's, um, uh, you know, I have different writers that I admire that are outside of science fiction, but I see real connections and real similarities. You know, I was leaning heavily on the shoulders of William Gaddis as I was writing this book, who I think is a fabulous <coughs> novelist and, you know, not a science fiction writer at all, except – well, you know, if you actually read his long novel J.R. on page, you know, 800 and something in the book, a matter transporter shows up. <laughs> really? It's there. It's a matter transporter. <laughs> it's subtle. It's in the background, but it's actually there and it's actually functioning. You know, so uh, the, the distinctions to me are, you know, basically meaningless. There are are ways of looking at the world that involve a certain amount of cognitive estrangement that you find that science fiction does supremely well that you can find them in modernist literatures of all sorts?
1: Well, I, it, it seems to me even – I never thought of Heinlein as a buoyant kind of writer. I, I, the stuff that I read when I was a kid, I read, uh, I read Bradbury for the, the melancholy – uh you know i i think it's it's always been a i don't know the two things and i like gary wolf but the two things he said one is that that uh Palo comes up with these heroes who always choose to do the easiest and the worst thing. That's a that's a common literary device. That's what writers do. If Unless you have heroes who are a little bit stupid and do stuff that, that's the wrong thing, you don't really have a book. Um, and so, I mean, you know, from Emma to Don Quixote, I think. Uh, so I don't think that that makes it – I don't think that disti- – That's to me, that's not what distinguishes uh, – Palo's work or uh, or any uh, uh, particular strain of science fiction these days. I think that and also just in terms of the genre uh, I don't think the and I'm not being arty or uncommercial but I think I think the that science fiction as a genre for good or bad and including a lot of crap and everything is not the commercial stuff that is science fiction at any particular Time. It's a. It's a. It's a linear thing. It's not horizontal. It's linear. It is. It does have a canon, and you might not like all the canon. You might not like uh, Starship Troopers, but it's in the canon. You might not like, you know. But uh, every book that's out there right now, even though it's called science fiction commercially and is science fiction in that it uses that toolkit, is not what in twenty years people will be talking about as what uh, made or ruined science fiction. Science fiction. It, the 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 genre is deeper than, than, than what's on the bookshelves I would say mm-hmm. well I didn't mean to bring it into everything <laughs> and, <laughs> but uh, yes Rena
5: Oh, Paolo. Well, yes, he's a science fiction writer. Well, Carter is not a science fiction writer, but there's elements. I was talking to someone <coughs> on the today about another author um, who shall remain nameless, but wrote the, I think it's the Confessions of Max Tilly. And he said about himself, he's dying to write a science fiction author. I said, yes, but will his agent let him? So there are so many authors out there that seem very terrified of being typecast as a genre author. But there seem to be just as many that would love to be <laughs> a genre author. I was wondering what your thoughts are. On on the commerciality of being a genre author, when you can decide what you want, if that's what you love, or if you get swayed by your agent saying, well, that really won't sell in Peoria.
4: <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> 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 I'm all for commerciality. I'd love to get more than about $2 an hour for, you know, <laughs> doing this stuff, but um, I don't think that's ever gonna happen, so it doesn't really matter. Uh, it used to drive me crazy um, that I would send in stories to science fiction markets and they would come back to me and the editor would say, I really like this a lot, but I'm afraid it's not science fiction. You know, I just – it made me want to tear my hair out. And it's like
1: Barack's not black enough, right?
4: Yeah, something like that. I don't know. Yeah, right. And, you know, until finally I just had to throw up my hands and, and, and give it up and – reached a point where I said, I really don't care. You know, I'm going to write what I write, and I will try to sell it wherever I can sell it. It doesn't make a difference. Um, this book, when I first started writing it, it went to Brian Chalfin at Tor Books. And it happened that Brian, um, before I finished the book, moved across the hall to another St. Martin's wing, Picador. You know, it, was, it wouldn't have made any difference to me, Tor Picador. Picador did a much better job of publicity, and I'm very happy that it got published with Picador, right? But it probably didn't sell any better and um at you know at some point, I just had to stop worrying about the distinction for my for my own sanity um that's just my you know personal take on it
2: i I think that one of the things i there's there's one aspect of this is just like you know, how are you going to sell your books and you know saying, "Oh, he's a science fiction writer? Does that mean automatically that I don't get taken seriously and that does sort of bug me sometimes um it's been um, a lot of the interviews that I've been doing to promote Pump Six have actually been pointed out towards either the environmental community or other people you know outside of the genre, and a lot of it has to do with saying, "Hey, look, this is speaking about us. this is speaking about our world um, this is not about the future, in the sense of like, you know, it's going to happen. This is about now, and these are relevant, you know, sort of artistic interpretations of ourselves, and um, and saying science fiction in that case makes it. you you actually have to sort of talk them down off the cliff then and say, no, 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 don't jump yet. Let me explain some more about what I'm doing. And then they're like, oh, wow, that's really interesting. And so in that sense, like, there's some baggage that you haul along, you know, with science fiction as you go to the outside the genre and try to talk to other people. Um, The other thing, though, that I I find is that – I think about – I mean, and this is – when you say this is not a science fiction story or this is a science fiction story, um, I've been noticing a lot that, you know, when I'm writing a story, I'm thinking, okay, if I'm going to sell this story to the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, what are the things that a magazine of fantasy and science fiction editor and reader are going to be looking for – in order to be satisfied by this. And those are really, really different things than if I'm going to give it to somebody who's just an environmentalist friend. Um, and I, I've done this thing where I've, I've, I've written a story, I feel pretty good about it, and I'm like, it's not science fiction yet. Right. And I need to think, because I was interested in a premise. I'll, I'll come up with, the, the story that I wrote um, uh, a while ago is Pop Squad, and I was just interested in a crazy premise and I think if I had written that as quote unquote sort of mainstream fiction or literary fiction I could have written it as a surreal sort of meditation and I, I don't want to like spoil this for other people so I'm not going to say exactly what I'm doing with this story but I could have written it surreally and I wouldn't have had to pack it with what I'll call the science fiction furniture. Um, mm-hmm. In order to sell it as a genre piece I needed to look at it and say okay what am I going to do in order in order to make this give this science fiction furniture I'm like okay this is the future. So, what's the future look like? I'm going to build up a world that says a lot of stuff here, and and some of that turned out to be really useful stuff. Um, that that fleshing out of the scenery of the place, but it it was functionally it was it was it was providing science fiction furniture and science fiction tropes to make people who read science fiction feel more comfortable that this is actually yes, it's science fiction. It's for real, um, not just you know. It, I mean, it perceived as an empty. Experiment in, uh, it with an idea. I, I don't know. That's, mm-hmm. I don't.
4: Yeah. And I think we've all, you know, at one point or another in our careers made that calculation to say, well, the, what I'm trying to get at in this story doesn't really need the science fiction furniture. But on the other hand, this is where I'm known. This is where I can sell the story. So, mm-hmm. and putting the furniture in doesn't necessarily, so, I mean, sometimes it does hurt the story and then you have a little crisis on your hands and sometimes it doesn't really,
2: you know. It's, it's just sort of that experience, though, of not knowing that, like, here's this thing. And now, now you do actually have to find a category for it, essentially. Right. That, you know, where is that market that it fits to? Right. You
4: know? And I think that people – I think that readers in general are, are a lot more willing now than they were, say, 20 or 30 years ago to cross categories uh, because you have environmentalists, you know, who are reading your stuff. And I think that's a great thing that people now have more than one sort of core audience because when I started to write science fiction, it was much – it was more insular, you know. Mm-hmm. People who read science fiction – Maybe they didn't read very much, you know, outside of the field, um, not nearly to the degree that people do today. And I think that's a, a great gain, but there still is that commercial core, you know, that doesn't have to do with simply the the literary part of the genre, but has to do with the marketing category and people want that category to have reliable solid experiences. Yeah, right. yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: Do you think that's really changed much? I mean,
5: Telling her, you know, i read A to everything you have. Can are there other authors out there that are similar in that? And she goes, there's this really good book you sh- you might like, but it's not science fiction. But you might think it's science fiction. it was never shoots on the beach. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, if that's not science fiction, <laughs> I don't know what it is. Mm-hmm. Right. So, and, uh, I found it odd that a librarian would make that distinction and not be open to embracing these. You know, it had a you know these other books with a mild. You know, for, for instance. So, well, how do, how do you feel your work will be treated in years to come? Are you going to be firmly a science fiction
2: writer,
5: firmly a genre writer? He's got a little bit of sci-fi in it, but mostly he writes about the environment. You
2: know? Well, I mean, and, you know, and there's another interesting ghetto to be in. You know, always oh, an environmental writer, environmental writer. Like, let's slit our wrists right now and just chew granola. Like, that's going to suck. Uh, um, yeah, yeah. Um, I, you know, actually, this is something that it's, it's a little bit weird because one of the other things that I've been cast at is that I'm a more literary science fiction writer. I'm like, well, what if I do want to write some spaceships and guns <laughs> and things that explode? <laughs> and, you know, there's, there's you a know, lot wait of a like... Minute. What, wait a minute. What's the story you just read? Yeah, I want more explosions. I should have blown the dog up if that was the case. I would have nuked it if I was writing that kind of story. It's a dog. Boom! <laughs> um... And that, you know, there's a lot of these interesting sort of categorizations where it says, you know, oh, if you're a literary, you know, so-and-so, you aren't supposed to go out and, like, just write some raging adventure stories. Well, but that's fun, too. And and trying to find, like, where – I'm sort of still trying to figure out exactly what my next projects are going to be. I've got this book that I'm trying to finish right now. And God help me. I hope I do soon. Um, but uh, after that, you know, there's there's all of these different options. I mean, I've got a lot of ideas. And some of those are you know heavily science fiction you know game on and other ones are you know all over the map and you know some of them are just just fun stories and some of them are more like big think pieces and 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 that's you know kind of a, a it's a, you know, sort of a, you know what i've heard from other people is it's sort of a bad career move to keep jumping around and keeping on experimenting cuz readers never know what the hell they're going to get and they actually don't like getting a box of chocolates they like you know something that's really consistent and so <laughs> i don't know well <laughs> for pseudonyms, yeah. <laughs> Drop some vowels and stuff like that and become like sort of more more Eastern European. <laughs> or win the
4: Pulitzer Prize and it becomes much less of a problem.
2: Yeah, seriously. There you go. All
4: right, we have uh, a
1: couple of publishers here Jacob and I know Jeremy's here. If you guys want to chime in at any point, uh, sometimes they actually come down here.
4: <laughs>
1: well, they can speak for both ends. <laughs>
2: How they're going to make authors everywhere rich, rich, rich.
0: <laughs> I, let me say, uh, Jeremy. Well, I was going to say it is that, like you say, a Double-Edged Sword, we very much use that kind of characterization of your fiction to, to help promote the book and help differentiate it from a very crowded science fiction marketplace and get people outside of science fiction interested in it. But at the same time, those kind of books that you use to promote a book can also be used by the general readership to go, "Oh, he's like that." Okay, I don't read that, and become like you know something, you know, something that people used to dismiss your work.
1: So it's a it's a tough line. You know. Okay, let me say one thing. I, um, it's kind of interesting to me to have these two authors here because on the one hand, Carter. I think uh, Carter's career is uh, has taken. A turn that's not that that it reminds me of Jack Womack, who's a, a very distinguished writer in science fiction that basically said "fuck it," you know. It's 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 and um, uh, Paul Park was the same way at a certain point, um, and I think that that happens to people because I think the the field uh, it, it's not elastic enough uh, sometimes. I think I, on the other hand, I'm I'm looking at Palo Career and talking about, I writing a story and I'm to send it to the science fiction mags or give it to a environmentalist friend. I'm saying that's it, it exactly. If you want to publish it, if you want to be a a young man who has published uh, to great acclaim, your this this book of stories, has won awards, has found a a consistent, intelligent, inquisitive readership. That's willing that that puts a lot of. You know the science fiction readership is a is a readership that rewards uh, the kind of thing you're doing. It would not happen otherwise. If these books were in the Hudson, if these were in the Hudson Review and the This Review and then that Review and the and Mother Jones and here and there, um, you know uh, this this would not have happened. So the science fiction field is still a, it it's a field not. Um, I don't want to say launch a career. I want to say it it gives you the materials to shape a career. You can only shape your writing if you actually get published and get feedback, and you're getting a lot of that. and And that's uh, that's because of science fiction. It's not there. There was never an option. the uh, The other option is is get an MFA program somewhere and, and ten people read it and then another twenty people read it. and You get a fifty dollars check.
2: <laughs> no, in, in that sense, it's it's sort of the... This is the gravy train end of the world, like exactly. science fiction is. <laughs> but Mickey?
6: Yeah, but on the other hand, uh, I like both writing, both of the readers tonight, and uh, the writing, but it seems to be, you know, when Carter uh, read, uh, at least a little bit I, I heard, that wasn't science fiction. And they made it very explicit. It was fiction. And it was the kind of fiction that makes people... I admire enormously because it makes people truly uncomfortable by putting a light on the situation of the real world and the people that are playing in it. You did it with great astuteness. If you look at historically, uh, Charles Dickens and Gissing, you know, wrote New Grub Street. Gissing was hated by the bourgeoisie of Britain because he wrote realistically, and Dickens did. He was a genius, but he spun these marvelous tales. When I read science fiction, one of the comforts in it is that, uh, with all due respect to the genre, is that it doles awareness in a way. There's a kind of a, Good point. Just a kind of a touchstone of Baba ba fantasy, and I can oh, it's not really scary. What he was reading about that conversation at the table was very frightening because they're going on in all in, in restaurants all around the world, and this is how they treat people. That stuff is going to be pushed down to... It's not going to be bought. It's because the publishers are scared. That stuff is truly radical. You may have a very good and fruitful career, and uh, God bless you, and I hope you do, but to make real change in consciousness, you've got to tell the truth exactly as it is without
2: touchstone. This is an interesting thing, because I was just having an argument with uh, with Jeremy about this, and um, and it's the question of how much metaphor you know, when you use science fiction as, as a metaphorical tool for talking about an idea, how much metaphor is reinforcing an idea? And then at what point are you actually being becoming so removed that it's actually, you can say, oh yeah, it's a metaphor for it, but really it's bogus because you've got launched into fantasy. And the classic example is, oh, the alien race and the interactions with an alien race, that's about diversity. Um, is it, or is it You know, I mean that's that's one of these spots where it's like okay yes this is a metaphor maybe for interacting with the other but if you really want to get down in the dirt about talking about dealing with the other we've got all kinds of things going on right here on the planet where we're not doing very good at it and that's where you know and that's where the stakes are high and where um, maybe you know in my opinion that's a spot where you become too removed. Science fiction removes itself from the gritty reality of dealing with People who are different from one another. Um, That said, I I don't actually agree that it's the only response to a metaphor. Like, I mean, I just I feel like there are there are some some stories can can pull you away and some some stories yank you in deeper and further than you ever wanted to go and i think that's you know it's not a question of the tools or exactly the furniture it's actually a question of where the where the camera is focused by the writer i think mm-hmm. that's that's my personal
4: yeah i would agree with that and i think that that business of focusing the camera is one of the things that i was doing in here and you know part of that tool set comes from science fiction from the way that I learned to look at things from being a science fiction reader and a science fiction writer and I feel that you can say this you could say the same thing about you know quality lit let's call it NPR fiction you know <laughs> that that provides a very reliable set of touchstones every bit as much as science fiction does you know and that's not those are not radical books most of the quality lit that's being sold and being read in book clubs around the world you know, it's not very radical in any way. Yeah, yeah very consolatory. Yeah.
6: You, know, you realize, of course, in my statement, I wasn't referring to
4: NPR. I know you weren't, yes, right. Yeah, but I'm saying that, you know, it's 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 not just science fiction. That it's, it's it's the way of looking at the world. And, you know, it brings us back to Sturgeon's Law, which is that 90% of everything is, let's say it's underachieved. <laughs> you know.
1: well, but I think it was a different point. I, I think he made... Uh, very. Uh, this man made a very good point. He's not a science fiction fan, by the way. He Sneaked in here, but uh, but I think that
2: um, it, it he's the other. Way. Oh, yeah. There's a
1: but there's a question about there is a question about distance. I mean, and and, and you know I won't apologize for criticizing Paolo's or using Paolo's story because I have fought. I love that story. I fought to get him here, but it it talks about. A, a social and technological tendency that's going on, but it's not that close. In the sense, that we're not going to. We know we're comfortable in the sense we're not going to do that. So you can, you can. There is a, a way, even high quality science fiction. Now not always, but it, it can put a, a distance. Uh, so uh, uh, Rick was asking me a while ago about a story I wrote called "They're Made Out of Meat," which makes you think about this and that and the other. But it does not jar who you are personally. It jars what you think about things. But it's not, you know, it's it's not that close. I'm just thinking one of the things, I think one of the reasons Jane Austen is so popular is she deals with society and women's uh, oppression and all these kind of things. But at such a distance that we never feel that it's exactly a criticism of the relationship that we're in. And I think that there's a way, a great literature can be that way, but it, there is a there is a way that science fiction can deal with things by removing them, which can be a weakness as well as a strength. Jacob.
7: Aren't you assuming that, uh, that Paolo's story, that you're supposed to identify with the human beings and not the dog? <laughs> <laughs> if you do with the dog, it's a much more, if you identify with the dog as, mm-hmm. as, a, as a, a biological organism that's, uh, that's been outdated, then it's a, uh, then it's a much more uh, intimate story.
1: Yeah, no. I it, it to me, it's an intimate and moving story. Uh, there is just there is a there is a way which, you, in, in by being a literature of ideas, um, you know, it can be social instead of personal in a way. And I think it's a good point. Don't you all agree that it's a good point? Here, <laughs> here. Jeremy agrees that it's a good point.
0: Well, I think it's it's one of those things where Apollo's story about the kind of complete depth. Of the whole planet, you know, kind of like it's—it's it's like talking about the Holocaust. It's such a massive scale that, like, it's hard to, you know. But if you zoom in, you talk about the Diary of Anne Frank and that personal story. You know, that's what a kind of more realist fiction can tell that personal story really well. The same way that a more realist story can tell about the the death of polar bears and how we're not going to have any polar bears anymore. It's a more comprehensible personal story as opposed to the, the wide angle of all biodiversity.
2: Yeah, it's, I mean, <clears throat> one of the things when I was writing the story, I was really thinking about there was one specific thing that was going on in my head. And so this is, I mean, the question of whether or not it's too far removed or not. Um, is it was, uh, I had a conversation with a boss of mine and his comment was, hey, we're ingenious people. We can solve anything. We there's no reason to worry about controlling our population because the more people we have, the more ingenuity we have at our disposal. It's that, you know, is that. And, and he he spoke with that perfect. He spoke with gorgeous, perfect faith in in human ingenuity and by assumption, wisdom. Um, and that was. And I had to stew with that for like, I think it was six or seven years before I finally figured out how to write The People of Sand and Slag because I wanted to say, look, let's take your argument and let's run with that for a little while. I'll give you some technological innovation here. I'll give you some more. Now let's have some more. And that's the spot where I think science fiction saying, what are, what's our relationship with technology? Um, I think, that, I think I couldn't – I don't think I could have come up with a way to tell that story because it has, has to do with our myths about ourself, our myths about where we're going in the world and who we are as human beings. And I don't think that a, a story set in the present day – I could not come up with a story set in the present day that would speak to that mythology – uh, because it's it's essentially a forward looking myth- mythology. It's the it's this mythology that hey, reading is good because we know what happens in the future. We know our storyline, and so okay, well here's another storyline with your same assumption. Well, um, yeah, I'm yeah, I'm interested. Uh, and
6: these, are, these aren't uh, is it okay Can I
1: respond? yeah yeah, as long as it's something nice. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I don't get to talk to I don't get to talk to anybody who gives a shit about this stuff where I live, so it's pretty interesting to me. Like, <laughs> Let's
6: just look, at, look in terms of metaphor and how we feel with something we heard in terms of an the image. There's an image in your story. The woman, remember, the girlfriend was cut. Okay, I'm just talking about how I felt. I
3: saw what you were doing there, and
6: I thought it. Okay, I saw a picture, but I didn't feel it. But when he talked, and he, when. Uh, Gordon?
1: Gordon? Carter.
2: Carter. Carter.
6: When he used the image of the burn, mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm.
2: the metaphor. Right. That is right. Here's a disposable person. They're this is the, the not yeah. just a disposable
6: person, but we're talking about vast systems of
2: delivery uh-huh.
6: of going to burn. Huh? And we're talking about a thinker <laughs> and a monster and a
2: hat. Wow, you're a much bigger thinker than I am. Like <laughs> he's burning,
6: he's selling burning. Now that scares me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It really frightened me because that's what i see outside mm-hmm. i was when you use the kind of uh, propensity of many images like that in a way there's oh but i'm not sure. I'm not touched and then right. there's another thing that we see oh right. okay, yeah right. it could go that way
2: that sort of I'm sense of wonder not overload
6: <laughs> about feeling. It's not thinking hmm. you have to feel hmm. you have to make the person feel mm-hmm. and that if you succeed in making them feel something you've succeeded in your creation whether it's dance film, or
2: yeah, you know, I think, I think that actually might be a personal thing. I mean, this is one thing that I've run across where somebody will say, this story amazed me. that it, you know, And they'll come along across another story and they'll be like, eh, that one, not so much. And I'll come across somebody else and they have exactly the opposite response. And I think that, you know, basically I think you should buy all of Carter Schultz's stuff because <laughs> you've got the connection. And that's... That's that moment where it's like, oh, right, there's actually an effective conversation. And it's it's the thing that, like, writers are most desperate to have with a reader is to have that sense of, like, you got it. that I'm amazed like that it, because it feels magical when that connection happens and it doesn't happen with every reader. I hear you.
1: It is interesting to think of that cigar as a delivery system, which, in fact, it was. Mm-hmm. It was a delivery system. <laughs> yeah.
3: But, you know, what happened to me in Paulo's story that, that really got me this sort of, wow, this was fun and enjoyable and then it got to be too much trouble, so let's get rid of it. And that is so human in, in my oh. life. I mean, I felt a twinge of conscience, you know. Um, your kid has a hamster. went through a lot of trouble. Or, you know, goes <laughs> down the toilet. <laughs> um, seriously though, and, and every, I think everyone has treated casually um, life, and, and it 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 moved me in that way where I examined my own conscience around it. So there was that personal element affected me in that way, and I, you know, the 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 setting and and so forth. But, you know, I found it interesting and exciting, but it wasn't the the thing that got me in the story. <laughs>
1: it's interesting to me because, I mean we're not here to workshop Pell's story I think Pell's story <laughs> no, I, the reason uh, I think you know, I'm glad we're getting uh, you know I already I, got paid for it I'm yeah.
2: happy
1: <laughs> I like to get d- different opinions and that's good I I think I think when you when you think of an idea for a story and you start to write the story and basically what happens is as you write the story you, you close up, up your <laughs> options. It's always say the thing, the same thing. You you the story by the time you get finished with the story, if it's successful, it has decided what it's going to be and and it you, you know and Powell's story, uh, to me is it works for what it is. But I think it's important to point out that there's certain things that it's not. <coughs> And I think I don't think you can extrapolate to say that that's something that science fiction as a whole is not, but I do think that there's a a, a considerable and respectable body of stories in science fiction that uh, that operate that way and and it's I think it's good to point out the the distinction that uh, that in a sense what what Paolo's saying is is almost like... He's repeating to me Jeff Ryman's doctrine of, of, the, of mundanity. I mean, he's written the least mundane story I've ever read, but he's, he said, you know, his, his, uh, your agenda is, is, in a sense, a mundane agenda, which is to say, we can't fix everything, you know. Get over it, you know. Right? Right. Here, here. Yes, <laughs> right.
0: <laughs> I think it's a good starting point for discussion but I just chuckle because I remember a year and a half ago where there was a very heated, that's not what he was saying in the document and it becomes like an interesting touch point to, to <laughs> look
1: at I don't think you should begrudge a colleague a small sinecure from yeah, yeah. You, know, you know it's not like I'm trying to mess everything up <laughs>
2: It's actually interesting because I mean this this essentially I mean what mundane fiction <laughs> yeah. I mean that's I mean in in, in, in the, the classification I always hated the name that they chose for themselves it was like yeah. my God don't you understand about branding like <laughs> 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 yeah. but um, but I, I guess there's like I, I think I think I'm sort of spiritually connected to the mundane sort of and and you're actually technically connected to them i feel like <laughs> like i mean like because they're saying okay we're going to reject all these crazy tropes of science fiction and yeah. we're going to get down with the, the sort of the nuts and bolts more and and I'm and but they've got this other part which is you know philosophically what are we about and so i sort of connect up to the philosophical part right. but even though in the details i never managed to write a mundane story like i just don't mm. um yeah I
4: don't well i mean one of the things that i was you know talking about was a dialogue between actual science and science fiction and the fact that so much of the science in behind SDI was in fact fictional
3: <laughs> <Yeah>.
4: <laughs>
2: magical even uh, frank uh, oh. did you ever have a dog did i I'm just wondering and what <laughs> no okay go on and, no no and, and what its name was and he what? was delicious <laughs> go on no no also like I was wondering what what if you had a dog like what its name was and I, 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 unless I missed it, so the dog doesn't actually get a name in the story. does nope. nope. I hadn't nope. even thought of that. Mm-mm. Yeah, he's no. Just the dog. It's they just an object. They didn't know that. They didn't know that. No, I mean, and. I never thought of it. Oh, yeah. really cool. No, it's, we it's No, that would actually imply some level of connectivity with it after all. Yeah. Like, yeah. All, you, you know. had
1: somebody right? Yeah,
7: uh very
2: science fiction thing it's tour de force exactly. world building exactly. like right yeah so that chapter right. yeah. Exactly. the way that you would
7: start a, an immersive chapter if you were going to set it in a completely alien planet mm-hmm. if you were going to set it in virtual reality mm-hmm. um it's it's really it, it's true that that there's a there's a certain amount of gaddis in that but then gaddis mm-hmm. wasn't particularly popular in the mundane world no um, no and so that's I, I, I think i think these just stylistically, um, there's uh, really a lot in common here, and uh, yeah, you you pick up the furniture depending on where you're going to be published, but you pick up your habits from a lot of different places, and there was a lot of, there's a lot of very science fiction-y habits to that that made it a lot
4: stronger. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks, and that's what I meant when I you know said earlier that I thought a lot of my practice in here came out of my experience as a science fiction reader and writer. Which is also what attracted me to Gaddis, because he's doing the same thing, you know, in a certain way. It's focusing the camera in a particular way.
0: No. Yeah. Um, so I understand that Carter, you are uh, you do uh, write experimental music, and that's mm. a type of music which, in some ways, is like a, like the literature of science fiction that reaches a fairly focused. Yeah.
4: Well, I don't think there's a lot of feedback that goes between the two things, but they come from the same place, obviously, and it it is world building, you know? When I'm um, composing a piece of music, I'm really starting from scratch and I'm building a sound world, right? And I need to lay it out in a way that makes it comprehensible, and I tend to use fairly simple materials and fairly simple structures. Um, So yeah, there's a a lot of sort of common uh, impulse uh, behind both of those things.
0: I wanted to ask you, Carter, about your kind of view of, I had a conversation with Powell earlier about the the tools of decoding the story, you know, like Huxley, the tools of decoding the story are are embedded within the narrative versus a lot of kind of like deep science fiction relies on a a kind of understood or implicit, Mm -hmm. you know, those tools lie with the reader and Mm -hmm. are embedded in the narrative.
4: Mm -hmm.
0: And I was wondering where you saw war fiction
4: lying in that. I, I definitely am a fan as a reader and as a writer of fiction that gives you the tools to understand it as it goes along. It teaches you how to read the material in front of you so that you are not coming in with a set of expectations or if you are, those expectations are gradually disarmed by what you're reading. The text, I think, is you know has this primacy that it needs to draw you in in that way. That's the way I – I mean that's the way I operate as a reader and as a writer. It's It's – let's say it's where I get my greatest satisfactions as a reader and as a writer. So is
1: that different in other types of literature? I don't know. Well, I
0: think in deep genre, when you have deep genre narratives that assume a lot, you know, be it, you know, say, abstract visual arts, you know, there's a dialogue that's going on amongst the creators and consumers of that art form that isn't embedded in the object itself, just like a lot of science fiction narratives assume you read Heinlein, you read Niven, you read, you know, this continuum, and now you're reading something that's in the continuum, and not all those pieces are embedded in the narrative, and so I thought that was really interesting, talking with Paolo, somebody who read Heinlein, you know, read the continuum of science fiction, chose to eschew a a kind of genre dialogue that, you know, assumed a built-in tool set on (coughs) on the reader's part, It kind of gives that...
1: It, it seemed to me like uh, if I think of uh, Paolo's other work, like like Calorie Man, um, I would agree. It's uh, but it seems to one of the one of the things maybe one of the things I really liked about People of Sand and Slag is it's not a story you can give to anybody. You you have to have a pretty good set of science fiction uh, stuff to read that story. You can uh, I can't um, I have a good friend. That I we trade stuff back and forth and uh, uh, one of the other my favorite dog stories is uh, Molly gloss's um, um, lambing season which was read here you know I gave him that story it's a have you ever read that it's a, it's another dog story yeah. and um, <laughs> and he got it right away this story he didn't like because he if you haven't read any science fiction you're you're not going to get the exoskeleton this and that and the other I like that because I thought you did it and did it Skillfully and well, I don't think that commits you to that. You're not that kind of writer altogether, but I think it's a it's a good thing to be
4: able to do. But Terry, let me ask you a hypothetical question about that because I'm so embedded with that stuff. I've read it all and so that exoskeleton <laughs> is perfectly natural to me and it makes, you know, But don't you think there are an increasing number of people who have like, you know, been to the movies and seen, you know, Yeah. Somebody yeah. walk I mean it, yeah. it's more comprehensible now than I think it was, yeah. you know,
2: 30 years ago. The, yeah. I guess the other question I have is did he actually read to the end or did he stop because he ran across the exoskeleton? <laughs> Um,
1: he he. The exoskeleton bumped him bumped him off. He was okay. a dead man.
2: Yeah, um, yeah. Because I mean, I guess that's that's something else. Is like there's 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 taste sort of things there that it's not really that he didn't even understand the story. It's that he stopped reading the story, which then mm-hmm. I'm sorry. I, no, no. I mean, I can't help him. I mean. Um, but I mean, you know, and so those, yeah. The I mean, I started out deliberately trying to subvert. Like, there's a part of that's the subverting military SF. Like, yeah, here, oh, we're gonna go on an adventure. Oh, no. Nope. <laughs> um, but that said, I can give it to my wife who doesn't read science fiction, and she did get it. Um, she, but she was a determined reader. She was willing to read past whatever slash bangs are, whatever exoskeleton she is, you it. know, whatever H-E-V is, right, <laughs> you know, yeah, exactly, you know, <clears> that's like, woman?
1: It's not a criticism of your story. No, right? no, but um, anyway, you know.
2: <clears throat> I guess the thing is, is like, I mean, I I, felt, I found this in, in sort of, you know, literary fiction too, where mm-hmm. somebody is, oh, well, obviously this is a reference to blah, 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 and I'm like, I'm not that smart and I'm not that well read, and I always get frustrated when I run into a book that you know, basically all of it relies on me being clever. Um, I I also have, we we talked about this frustration with Quentin Tarantino and his Hong Kong homages. I'm like... I, you know, I like Hong Kong cinema and I hate you, you know, riffing on it <laughs> like, it's like I want you to just tell me a story that I can get all the way through and appreciate it in itself like, you know.
1: but I think probably I'm exaggerating because Carter's right, I mean a lot of this stuff is common knowledge now, we had all the Michael J. Fox time travel movies, you know it used to be that the time travel paradox was, was our domain right, and you know, everybody yeah. understands that crap now, so I, it's, it's probably a little overblown and How from
0: the science other. Science fiction conquered the, conquered the world. You right. Know, all those kind of core basic furniture of science fiction, part of a broader idiom, broader pop cultural mm-hmm.
1: you know, understanding. Yeah, but there's a way in which you look at a Charles Strauss story, story, in a sense, and, and, and they're trying true. to say. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna get a little deeper, and we're gonna get rid of some of this, some of these readers. You know, yeah.
2: <laughs> no. If there's too
1: many re- people in this theater. If you're, read, <laughs>
2: if you're gonna read, if you're gonna read, if you're gonna read Strauss, it's really good to have read like you know Gibson, Stevenson, and Vinji first. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. like okay, hey, now I'm getting into this, right?
1: right. Oh. And
0: there's, you know, slash dot quite a
1: bit. Yeah. <laughs> so there's there's a virtue to that, I think. You know. <laughs>
4: And you know, if you're expecting a literary novel and you have run across the phrase "X-ray laser" on
2: page twelve, you know that's also <laughs> Danger Will Robinson. Yeah, it'll, yeah, yeah.
4: Or it's it's,
0: it's one of those things where, was it these the, the science fictional concepts or even technological concepts get described in great detail in, in, in like mainstream thrillers and stuff like that. Where it's like you really need to explain what a retina scanner is, and uh, the first of it, the author of the Da Vinci Code, his first book, like had a two-page description of what like a retinal scanner was, and it was like techno porn for the technical.
2: <laughs> well, I, I have I have this theory about the Da Vinci Code, like that it, it's like the cryptography book that makes dumb people feel smart. And then you've got something like Neil Stephenson's Cryptonomicon, which makes smart people feel stupid. You get these two things. It just kind of depends on your fetish. All
1: right. Does everybody feel stupid? (laughs) Yep. All right. Listen, thanks a lot, guys. Uh,